0: Thank you for downloading Sunday's podcast from Paragon Church. Why does God allow suffering? For more information about Paragon Church, please visit ParagonChurch.com. hear him speak on from the pulpit. Uh, No one was surprised that uh, among the the first questions to come in was one that has to deal with the topic of suffering, and specifically, why does God allow it? Now, I'm, I'm sure he's perfectly capable of answering this difficult question, but he offered it to me to answer, and so lucky me, lucky you, you're stuck with me today. But uh, before we address this topic, because it is a difficult one, especially for people that are caught in the midst of suffering to deal with, I'd like to open at least in prayer before we get started. So would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you for your presence among us here today. We want to invite you and your spirit to to be real to us this morning, to open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to hear what your word has to say on this very difficult and important topic. We pray that you would be our teacher and our guide. I pray, Father, specifically for me, that you would use me as your mouthpiece today to guard my speech, that everything I say is something that would be from you. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all that we say and do today. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For 15 years, I served the city of Rio Rancho as a police chaplain, and fire chaplain. I served just long enough to be able to recruit Matt to replace me before I retired. So I thought that was a pretty good move, probably the best move I made in the 15 years that I, I served the city of Rio Rancho. But you know, in all of that time... Not once did I get a call from dispatch saying, hey, we've got some good news that we need you to get out to the public. You know, like somebody just had a baby. We need you to go find the grandparents and let them know. It never happened. No, every single call that I got during the 15 years that I served as a chaplain was to deliver some kind of bad news. Bad news either that someone had been injured or killed Um, Bad news that somebody wasn't coming home. Bad news that there's a problem, that you're not going to see anyone or you have to get down to the hospital right away. Never once was it good news. And you know, in all of those calls, I encountered only two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. Either they were people who were frightened because of my appearance at the door. Because, you know, when we called out, first thing we do is we put on, put on the church. We've got the jacket that says chaplain on the back. We all, The policy in Rio Rancho is the chaplains were never sent out alone. We were always escorted by a police officer. A police officer was always glad to have us be the mouthpiece because they hated delivering bad news. But we always had one there just in case because you never knew how people were going to respond to... The bad news that we were bringing so we'd show up there'd be a police uniform i'd have my chaplain jacket on or my shirt on or a hat on or something that identified me as a chaplain my my badge my tag and the first reaction of people was usually fear they were more fearful of seeing me there than of seeing the police officer that was escorting me there because they knew i wasn't there for a good reason and usually what would happen is they'd open the door, and the first thing, first thing I would hear from their mouths was either, Oh, God, or Jesus Christ. Now, for some of them, that was actually a plea for help from above and strengthening. For others, it was the first sign of growing anger inside that was going to be directed at God. And sometimes that anger would spill out towards me, which was why the policeman was there. And so our policy was we'd we'd ask if we could come in, we'd we'd get them to sit down, and we would always try to get a table, a coffee table or something between us, and we would sit down just in case once we delivered the news, it was not uncommon that they'd actually come across the table and want to lash out, not at me, although I was, you know, shoot the messenger, but the point is that they're angry at God that, why did this happen? And frequently we get that million-dollar question, Why? Why did this have to happen to him? He was such a good person. Why did this happen to her? She had so much to live for. And that anger towards God, that how could he possibly allow such a thing to happen, that anger would start to build, would start to spill over. And that was usually the very first response we get, would be anger directed first at God, sometimes spilling over to us. Now, you know, that sort of thing just doesn't happen to other people in town, some other house. It's happened in here several times in the, how many years has it been now, Matt? Nine years. Okay, we've had people come down with serious life-threatening illnesses. We've had some people die, some people have heart attacks, some people have strokes. And it's not uncommon to hear that question, what's going on? in the church family? Where's God in all of this? Is He, you know, on vacation? Is He not paying attention? Why does He allow such things to happen? And we kind of use that, you know, generically. Why does God allow, if He's such a loving God, why does He allow suffering inside the church? Why does He allow, really, what we're asking, why does He allow good people to suffer I mean, let's face it, a lot of us get on our, high, on our holy high horse and we say, well, oh, yeah, of course. So well, look at that person's lifestyle. No wonder he's got you know, this illness or that sickness or other things happening. Yeah, look at the lifestyle. So the problem is, when it actually comes home to roost, home being here in the church specifically, why does God allow good people to suffer? That's a million-dollar question. And I think where it comes from is that, you know, at some time or another, we've all studied or at least done some reading in the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we see these stories about Jesus, how everywhere He goes, it seems like He's healing somebody. You know, He encounters somebody sick. He heals them, like Peter's mother. He encounters somebody that's lame, can't walk, can't talk, can't see, can't hear, and He heals them. Sometimes He even heals them without them asking or seemingly wanting to be healed. He does it anyway. And so if we had just stopped there in our studies, we'd come away with the impression that, well, it should be expected that Jesus would heal. And then we bring that into the church. Well, it should be expected that he should heal somebody in the church. And we even start asking the questions, why does he even allow us to get sick in the first place? But the reality is, we do. And it begs that question why? Now, if we had stopped in our studies with all of those healing events and not gone on to read the rest of the book, and you start building these expectations all the time that, well, yeah, it's, why does He even allow this? The expectation comes, well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you, sh- you should be healed if you just ask Him, or, or you shouldn't even be sick in the first place. And so, you see all of these wild doctrines get developed within the church. Perhaps you've heard some of them. I don't know if you remember the good old Reverend Schambach. He was on the radio and he used to say, you don't have any problems. All you need is Jesus. Okay? Sounds good. Right? Or if you have enough faith, you'd be healed. And so if you're not healed, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. Or when we were facing one of our sons with a life-threatening illness... I actually had somebody say to me, well, he's sick because you think he's sick and you're projecting it on him. Oh, how'd you like to have that, somebody to comfort you? Great message, huh? The reality is, though, people do suffer, and it does beg the question, why does God allow suffering in the world? Of course, sometimes, you know, we do climb on that high horse, as I've mentioned before, we do say, ah, oh, it's a product of your lifestyle. You know, you want to shoot drugs? It's no surprise you get sick. You know, you want to mess around on the side? It's no, no, no surprise you get some kind of STD. You know, you do this, you do that. Eh, get off the high horse for a minute. Where do we turn, though, for the answer? Why does God allow suffering? Where, where, where do we turn? Anybody? How about we start with the Bible? Let's start with the Bible. Right? There are many... Well, first of all, let me back up and say, there is no silver bullet answer in the Bible. There is no one answer in the Bible that covers all cases. But we do have many, many examples. We do have several explanations. And I want to look at five Today, out of all of them, because these five have served me very well as a pastor, as a chaplain, as a teacher, and even just as a friend over the years. They've served me to help people answer that question why does God allow good people to suffer? But first, let's lay a foundation out of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I want to turn specifically to chapter 8. Open your Bibles if you want. Verses are going to be here. We're going to start in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 18. This is what Paul writes. "'For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility.' not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the bondage to decay the glorious, into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he already sees? Now if we have hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose." So, out of this passage, we get the first reason why we experience suffering, and that is because we live in a fallen world. In verse 21, Paul says that the creation is in bondage to decay. We can reasonably be sure that God built into the creation some form of decomposition, Okay, Because without decomposition, the food that we eat could not be broken down within our bodies to release the nutrients that our bodies need to survive. But decomposition is not decay that's spoken about here. No, decay here means death. Death is the promised result of what? Adam's sin. The day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Death is the promised consequence of sin. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It is the curse that God placed upon humanity, upon the human race, as a consequence of disobedience. Did you know that you actually begin to die before you're even born? Even while you're still in your mother's womb, your body, as it's forming, is sloughing off dead skin cells? How many of you ever heard of Mike Rowe? Remember Mike Rowe in the program Dirty Jobs? Dirty Jobs. How many of you watch that? Several of you. I see you nodding your heads. Mike Rowe did a, did a story on um, mattresses, and the person he was working with told him that, did you know that an old mattress weighs about 20 pounds more than a new one? And Mike Rowe said, why? And the guy said, well, that's 10 years, which is the normal lifespan of a mattress. That's 10 years of accumulated dead skin cells. <laughs> I hope you don't have nightmares when you get into bed tonight. (laughs) But, yeah, your body is constantly sloughing off, you know, dandruff. What's dandruff? Dead skin cells, right? Those are the ones that we usually see, especially when we're wearing something black and we're constantly going like this all the time. But your body is constantly sloughing off dead skin cells. That reminds me of something. I, I wanted to thank Matt publicly for the introduction to my today's message and his message last week, but I hate him for it because I cannot say body, guard, God quickly because I'm handicapped by the language. <laughs> I put the R's in the wrong place in other letters too, as you just saw. Anyway, um, yeah, you, you're actually dying from the even before you're born. That's one of the consequences of sin, The context of verse 21 makes it clear that Paul is talking about the redemption of our bodies, which he mentions in verse 23, meaning the restoration of our bodies to the condition that they were supposed to be when he first created Adam. Now, in his letter to the Corinthians, he talks about the fact that we will be restored when... At the sounding of the last trumpet, when Jesus comes again, when those who are dead in Christ will be raised, and we who are alive will be transformed from mortal to immortal. That's the point at which we will be transformed, and we can say goodbye to suffering. But until then, we are stuck under that consequence of sin, which is part of the curse that God promised when Adam uh, sinned in the garden. So until then, we are subject to... decay, And on this side of the grave, that decay manifests itself in a number of ways. Sickness, infirmity, disease, dysfunctional organs, joints, muscles, various neurological maladies, and where do they all end? In death. It's just part of the consequence of sin and the world that we live in. We use the term suffering to describe the emotional and physical effects of experiencing this decay in our lives. For some, this suffering is brief but intense. For others, it is relatively mild but drawn out over a long period of time. For some people, it's both intense and drawn out for a long period of time or recurring over and over again. But where does the suffering come from and why? It's part of the curse of the world that's lying upon the world in which we live. There is no other reason. God said, on the day you sin, you will die. It's part of that curse. Now, that doesn't mean he's not concerned for us. That doesn't mean he's to blame for it. It was not he who sinned. And it doesn't mean he's not concerned for us in our suffering. Because clearly the scriptures reveal that he is concerned, and we're going to see more of that as we look at the other four reasons. But the primary reason is we live in a fallen world, and sickness and suffering and death are part of the world in which we live. And until Jesus comes again, we're stuck with it. It doesn't mean that God's unloving, as you'll see as we continue here this morning, but it does mean. That's the way it is. That's the package that we have inherited from Adam. Now, the second reason why we experience suffering is because God does use it as a chastisement for sin. I mentioned that earlier. That's the first reason that we get on our high horse and point fingers at other people it's a chastisement for sin. Now, there are many descriptions for sin in Scripture. In fact, uh, Leviticus chapter 26, we get a whole bunch of them, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In verse 1, it talks about idolatry, which is worshiping, worshiping images made by man instead of worshiping the Creator. Verse 2, failure to observe God's Sabbath. Remember, keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath. Verse 3, failure to obey His laws, decrees, and commands. Verse 14, it talks about failure to listen to the Lord. Verse 15, rejecting his decrees, almost a repetition there. Verse 19, displaying a stubborn pride. And actually from verses 18 and on in chapter 26 of Leviticus, we have all of these forms get summarized into a single term. Hostility. Hostility that is directed toward God. And this is what he has to say about that in verse 21. If you act with hostility towards me... And are unwilling to obey me, I will multiply your plagues seven times. The plagues is of reference going back to Egypt. I will multiply your plagues seven times for your sins. I will send wild animals against you that will devo- deprive you of your children, ravage your livestock, reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. If in spite of these things you do not accept my discipline, but act with hostility toward me, Then I will act with hostility towards you. I also will strike you seven times for your sins. So there we have it. Okay, sometimes God sends suffering to people as a chastisement for sin. And we do get our just desserts. God will chastise us for our sin, but He doesn't chastise us to be mean. He does it because He loves us as His children. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. He chastises us because he loves us as his children. Revelation 3.19 says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline So be zealous and repent. God sometimes allows suffering in our lives because he wants us to repent of our sins. Don't go pointing the finger at other people because remember, every time you're pointing the finger at other people, there are still three fingers pointing back at you. Clean up your own house first. Don't ask God why is he allowing suffering in your life unless you're asking him to reveal Is there sin in your life that you need to deal with? Nobody can answer that question but you. And be honest. Is God chastising you as his child because he loves you? And he wants to call you back to himself. Now, a third reason why God allows suffering in the world is to stretch or strengthen our faith. Stretch or strengthen our faith. Compare Peter in Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus speaking, and he calls him Simon at this point, but we know Simon is also Peter. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's a couple of really... Keep that up there for a minute, that that slide. Okay, there's a couple of interesting, unspoken issues in this verse. Jesus has prayed for you that your faith will not fail. All right, so who's on our side? Who's on our side? Jesus, okay. And you, when you have turned back, what does that imply? Jesus is going to let Satan have his way with Peter. He's going to let Satan sift Peter. When you have turned back, what's he expecting? Strengthen your brothers. Remember when I gave my testimony a couple of weeks, uh, he started out, uh, Matt started out with that, you know, gospel thing, how they broke down the gospel, and then I gave you an alternate definition of gospel. God occasionally sends problems expecting learning, Right? God's going, Jesus, in this case, is going to allow Satan to sift Peter. Why? He expects Peter to learn something from it. So why? He can then take what he's learned and apply it and help strengthen the brothers. I should have set this thing up so it doesn't keep shutting off on me. So let me wake it up again. There we are. Okay. So Jesus warned Peter. Satan is asked, guess what? I'm going to let him. And to what purpose? So that when it was over, Peter would be better equipped to strengthen and help encourage the other disciples. We can also conclude from this that Peter himself first needed strengthening. You know, a tree that grows in the forest has a very weak root system because all of the trees around it Protect it from the wind. So trees in the center of the forest have a relatively shallow and weak root system. And Yvonne and I saw this demonstrated very vividly when we lived briefly for a few years in the state of Washington. They had cleared a small patch of forest, put in a new housing development. They had left a few of the bigger trees as standing sentinels to the memory of the forest that was around them. And everything was fine for a few years, and people were moving in. Then a big windstorm came, and guess what happened to those big sentinels of the forest? They were blown right over into the rooftops of the surrounding new houses. They ended up having to cut every one of them down because not one of them had deep roots because all of their lives growing up, they had been protected from the winds. But if you take a seed and plant it out in the open, and a tree grows up from it where it's constantly buffeted by the wind all the time, it's going to put down really deep roots, and it's going to be really strong. And sometimes God allows the winds of suffering to blow against us while we're standing out there all by ourselves so that we too will put down deep roots of faith. So suffering can have that same effect on the soul as the wind On the trees. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, he he describes the many times when he had been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, gone without food, gone without sleep, chased out of town, unjustly imprisoned, and he even mentions some thorn in the flesh. Now, nobody knows what that thorn in the flesh is, but but most Bible scholars think it's some kind of malady, whether it was bad eyesight, because in Galatians, he's talking, my, look at how big my handwriting is. When Because he, he, he used the secretary. We call it an amanuensis. He would dictate his letters, and somebody else would write them down for him. And then in Galatians, he actually signs it at the bottom so we know it's really from him. And it, that's where he makes that comment. My, look how big my writing is. So we figure either he had bad eyesight, and couldn't really see what he was doing, or he had some kind of palsy because he'd been clonked over the head too many times, and so you know, his, his, he had, didn't have good fine motor control. Whatever it was, he refers to it as a thorn in the flesh, and he tells us that three times he asked the Lord to take this thorn from the flesh away from him. What was the answer that he got? Anybody remember? He says, nope, not going to do it because I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient for you. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 reminds us, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete Lacking nothing. You know, I have met very few people who rejoiced in the midst of suffering. But I have met several people who, when the suffering is past, have looked back on it and seen how God used that suffering to help strengthen them and to help encourage them. Now, this brings us to a fourth reason why good people suffer. God sometimes allows suffering to use us as an example for others. Jesus himself set the example in this. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Keep our eyes upon Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. I can remember a time when, when I was pastoring a church in Massachusetts. Uh, one of the women in our church had a tumor in the cerebral cortex at the base of her skull. Very difficult to get at. And so her doctor recommended surgery to actually remove the tumor. It wasn't so yet embedded that they couldn't get it out. So she had the surgery, and I went to visit her in the hospital uh, the the next day. And she was obviously in very, very intense pain because of this surgery. And she commented to me that if she had known how painful this was going to be, she probably would not have opted for the surgery. And we concluded that her doctor knew how painful it was going to be, and purposefully didn't tell her because he knew that's what she was going to do, but she needed to have that tumor removed. And so I I suggested to her, um, rather than focus on your pain for a minute, look at the cross. Think about Jesus on the cross and what He endured, what pain He endured for you that your sins might be forgiven. Now I wasn't accusing her of being a sinner. I was just trying to get her to focus on something other than herself. Focus on the cross and the pain that Jesus endured for you. Now, a couple of months later, now fully healed, she took me aside one morning and actually thanked me for that because that's what got her through. She looked at Jesus and the example that He made for her and that enabled her to get through her own pain and her own suffering. The Apostle Paul understood the principle of suffering as a benefit of others when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction.'" so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. There are times when God wants to reach others through us. How we respond to suffering is viewed by others as a measure of how our faith serves as a litmus test to what we proclaim. It's one thing's to tell others, as I am this morning. It's an entirely other thing to keep the faith in the midst of your own personal suffering while others are watching. Again, as I mentioned in my personal testimony a couple of weeks ago, Yvonne and I walked through that valley of shadows with our, our first two sons, Jonathan and Mark, when our third son, Peter, was diagnosed at age seven weeks with an adult form of leukemia. At the time, we were both heavily involved in our church, and we were totally unaware of how we were being watched by others in the congregation to see how we would react to our son's illness. And it was only after his death that people came to us, seeking us out as they too shouldered their own crosses, They had seen us stand firm in the midst of our son's suffering and our own emotional distress, and they had become convinced that our faith was real, and they wanted us to help them now strengthen their faith as they face their own personal crisis. So you see, there are times when God allows good people to suffer for the benefit of others. Hard concept to grasp, but true nonetheless. Now, the fifth and last reason that I I want to raise today is that sometimes God allows good people to suffer simply to bring glory to God. This is probably the most difficult to understand, but there are at least two examples in Scripture. I'm going to raise two of them to you that demonstrate this particular principle. The first comes from John chapter 9, and it's a story about the man who was born blind. Perhaps you're familiar with this story. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or someone else's? You see, the thought was, how do you deal with that kind of physical malady in a child who is too young to be held responsible for any kind of sinful behavior. And they were so dumbfounded by that 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 the two theories that had evolved at that point was either somehow this child had sinned grievously while still in its mother's womb, or the parents perhaps had sinned so grievously that the consequence of their sin was borne out in the life of the child. And those were the only two conclusions that they came with. What was Peter's answer? Do you remember? Anybody remember? He said, neither. In other words, neither of these two theories were valid. This child was born blind. It was neither his parents nor the man who had sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And what happened? Jesus healed him. And what happened? The whole congregation were actually mystified. Never have we seen this kind of power and authority demonstrated in our midst. And what happened? They went away praising God. Second example, Mary. Anybody know Mary? Mother of Jesus, not Magdalene or the others. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're all familiar with the story in Luke. Stockton chapter 1 verse 26 and following what happens the angel gabriel comes to mary he says hey kid i'm taking some liberties with the text here hey kid you're going to be pregnant by the power of the holy spirit how you like them apples for a child a teenager to be pregnant and not married that was a stoning offense she could have been stoned that's what the scripture said Don't screw around on the side. That's a death sentence. So for her to be pregnant and not married, that was not good news. Rightfully, she could have been totally upset with that particular message. And yet, her response that's recorded for us in Scripture, and I'm going to get away from the CSB for a minute, Go back to the King James Version on this next passage because this is one of the best pieces of poetry we have in the entire New Testament. And, in fact, it's got a name. It's called the Magnificat because this is where she starts out. King James Version, verses 46 and following. My soul doth magnify, Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. Who's going to receive the glory for this one? Not her. Yeah, she's going to be called blessed, but who's going to receive the glory for this one? God. Right? Because from him, would, from her rather, Through Him would come the Savior. So now I've given you five reasons. There's more, but these are the five that have served me the best throughout my career and throughout my life. Five reasons why God allows suffering in the world and more specifically why God allows good people to suffer. But the more important question remains, and it is this. How will you respond to the suffering that you experience in your life? Whether looking back over your life or moving forward into the future, will you see suffering as a natural consequence of being a descendant of Adam, as the root of the decay that manifests itself within your physical frame? Will you view suffering in your life as a call to repentance for some sin that you have committed? Will you see suffering in your life as an opportunity for growth, of your growth of your faith in God as He stretches your faith? Will you see suffering as an opportunity to let God use you for the benefit of somebody else? Will you see suffering in your life as an opportunity to praise God yourself or see others glorify Him because of what you're going through? These are the five primary answers that I find in Scripture to answer the question, why does God allow good people to suffer? And this brings me back to Romans 8.28. We know That all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I've learned from personal experience that this is a verse, when you first encounter it, you must accept on faith. It's a hard concept to grasp. It's very difficult to call all things good when you're in the midst of a personal tragedy or crisis. But yet, that's what the scripture says. And it's only through testing, it's only through those trials, it's only through looking back when the event is past, that you can begin to understand and appreciate the truth of this verse. That's when it really becomes real to you. Through the death of our son, we felt the loving arms of God embrace us the people of the church. We've seen him use our pain to comfort others in pain. Did we understand eight twenty eight Romans 8.28 before then? No, we didn't, but we believed it, and it was only afterwards, after we walked through that valley of shadows with our son that we truly began to understand what that verse really means. So I beg you this morning, I ask you this morning, what is the cross that you bear? What is the source of your suffering? Is it physical in your own body or is it physical in the life of someone you know, someone that is close to you? And I wanna ask you one more question. Have you obeyed the instructions that we find in James chapter 5, verses 3 through 16? James writes this. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith Will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Many times as a pastor and as an elder, I've anointed others with oil or participated in the anointing of others with oil in obedience to this passage. And I have to admit that not everybody was healed in the way we expect healing because, you see, we have a distorted sense of what healing means. For us, healing means removing the sickness from the person. Sometimes God removes the person from the sickness. Think about that for a minute. In other words, not everyone has survived whatever illness that has befallen them. Many, most, in fact, have actually died. But they're no longer sick. They're no longer suffering. For the Scripture tells us that when we're with Jesus, what condition are we in? No tears, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering? So sometimes God removes the person from the sickness rather than removing the sickness from the person. We have to be willing to let God be God. But what does the Scripture command? Is any one of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go see a doctor. From the text, what are the elders supposed to do? Anoint with oil. There are two words in Scripture that are frequently translated by the English word anoint. One of them means to just pour oil over somebody. Okay, you see that, for example, in the Old Testament where oil is poured over David when he's anointed as the next king of Israel. You see that when uh, some of the prophets are also anointed in the same way by the pouring of oil. They pour, pour oil over the instruments that were used in the temple in order to sanctify them, make them holy to be used in the temple. But there's a second word that's also translated anointed, and that's the one that appears here in James. It actually is better translated massage with oil. Pour it on and rub it in. That's basically a medical procedure. Okay, we can interpret that as a medical procedure. So this doesn't say don't seek medical help. Seek medical help if you need it. But seek first God. Ask yourself these five questions. Why are you sick? And seek God for the answer. And then call for the elders. Let them anoint you with oil and pray for you. Are you willing to believe His promise that His purpose for you is good. But not only for you, but maybe for someone else too. Are you willing to submit yourself into the Lord's hands and say as Mary said in Luke one thirty-eight, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me as you have said. I'm going to be over here. I know Matt's going to come up here and make a few, possibly make a few closing comments. Jerome's going to come up here and lead us in a couple closing hints. But if anything I've said today has touched you or you have more questions, I'm going to be over here to answer questions and I'll stick around as long as there are questions to be answered. But first, let's close in prayer. Okay? Father, we thank you for your word because without your word, truly, we would be totally confused. And if we were honest with ourselves, most of us would be incurably angry at you for what you allow to happen. But we thank you that through your word, you tell us the truth. You show us that everything you intend for us is intended for our good. Not only our good, but sometimes also for the good of others. So Lord, let us be like Mary. Use us to your glory that others might be drawn to Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his sake, amen.